Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Schriever Space Power Series. I'm Kevin Chilton, Explorer Chair for the Mitchell Institute Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence. Today, the threats facing the United States are clear, with China and Russia at the top of the list. Both have demonstrated capabilities to attack U.S. space forces, to include our ground stations, command and control links, and our satellites on orbit. They've also signaled a willingness to partner when their security interests are aligned. Our adversaries have tested and indeed have fielded capabilities that they would plan to use in a conflict to eliminate the very capabilities our air, land, and maritime forces have come to depend on to remain dominant in their respective domains. To deter attacks on our space capabilities, our adversaries must believe they cannot achieve this goal. And they must believe that their own space capabilities, which they too depend on, will be eliminated in a conflict. Given that context, we're pleased to welcome Lieutenant General Stephen Whiting, Commander of Space Operations Command, to share his perspective on these challenges and many more. As the Commander of Space Operations Command, General Whiting is focused on the preparation, generation, and sustainment of combat-ready forces. In addition, his command serves as the Space Force service component to U.S. Space Command. So with that, General Whiting, welcome back. I think it's been about a year since uh, we last had this opportunity to chat at the Mitchell Institute, and we're excited to hear your views. So why don't we kick off today and Maybe you can tell us a little bit about what's, what's happened over the last year. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you so much to the Mitchell Institute for inviting me to come out. It's always great to be here uh, at the Mitchell Institute and the Air and Space Forces Association. And thank you for what both those organizations do to support the Space Force and Space Operations Command. You know, uh, Spock, as we call it, uh, we're not even two and a half years old, just over two and a half years old right now, I guess. Um, so a, a relatively young organization. Uh, but the first of the Space Force's field commands. We are, of course, the operational field command. And as you said, the, today we're the service component to U.S. Space Command uh, as well. So each and every day, all of us in SPOC, and that's guardians and airmen, military and civilian alike, we all show up to execute our mission, which is to protect America and our allies in, from, and to space now and until, uh, into the future. And to do, get after that mission, we have uh, three primary priorities that really are also about getting after the Chief of Space Operations lines of efforts and the Commander of U.S. Space Command's uh, priorities. And so those SPOC priorities are, are number one, prepare combat-ready, ISR-led, cyber-secure space and combat support forces. I think as we go through the next hour, we'll probably break some of those down. Mm -hmm. But those that word formulation is really important because it focuses on the combat readiness aspect that we in SPOC have to be focused on because we are the service component. We're executing operations right now. We're facing the threats in the do domain. We're supporting the joint force. We're support supporting the American people. So we've got to be ready to do that right now. But then it also ties together the four core capabilities that we bring to the Space Force, which are intelligence, cyber, space operations, and combat support. Of course, most of our combat support is brought to us by airmen assigned to us from the U.S. Air Force, but they are a part of our formations. So they are vital, you know, foundational parts of all that we do. Again, guardians and airmen, military and civilian alike, are executing uh, this priority for us. So that's priority number one. Priority number two is partnering across this broad stakeholder community that we have that gets after the space mission. Um, that includes other parts of the U.S. government, like the intelligence community, the National Reconnaissance Office, the Department of of uh, Commerce, uh, NOAA, uh, NASA, 
but it also includes our allies and partners. And uh, that's a vital part of, of helping us to execute our mission. Uh, you know, they come alongside us, they bring capacity, capability, and it's a, it's a very important partnership. And then the third priority that we have is to project combat power in, from, and to space. As a military service, we have to we have to execute all the same types of functions that the other services do uh, in our domain. And we have to bring all that together in a holistic manner. So that's what we're focused on uh, in SPOC. And over the last two and a half years, uh, we've continued to evolve the organization. Just in the last year, since we last talked, Neural Chilton, uh, we've stood up two new deltas. So we have uh, Delta 18 at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is also known as the National Space Intelligence Center, our foundational service intel center. Of course, every service has a foundational intel service center, and this is ours. And then uh, just a couple months ago, we stood up Space Delta 15 out at Schriever Space Force Base, which is the Space Force core element at the core of the National Space Defense Center, much like Delta V out at Vandenberg is the core of the Combined Space Operations Center. Um, and so doing command control work to help protect and defend our capabilities. Over the last year, we've uh, partnered with the Army and Navy to bring on all of the Army and Navy SATCOM missions. Mm -hmm. So now for the first time, all DOD SATCOM is resident in one service, the United States Space Force. And in fact, it's all in one Delta, Delta 8, which is now our, our largest Delta as well. And then we've had some other, uh, maybe more cosmetic, but yet important evolutions as well. Uh, just last month, we renamed Thule Air Base to Bitufik Space Base Thule. That, that actually took a negotiation with uh, Denmark because that's that name was in a treaty. Uh, but it, it highlights that that is a primary space facility, not an air base. But it also uh, pays homage to a local community there that was actually ha had to move in the 50s when Thule was built, or, or Bitufik now. And so we want to pay homage to those that Greenlandic village that, that, that paid a significant sacrifice to allow us to be there. But I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation here over the next hour. Maybe we can dig into some of those uh, Absolutely. Details. I mean, you've hit on some things that I wanted to ask you questions about. So it was a great introduction in that regard. Let me start with... Um, the recent launch by the Space Development Agency of their first tranche of satellites. It's been a, a long journey, I won't say torturous, to get to a point where we're actually implementing the theory of moving from large um, multi-mission satellites in orbit to more specific, smaller satellites in low Earth orbit, and a network that would holds the promise of you know a, a global, consistent way of communicating and also sensing the planet. And so it's exciting to see it, it finally start to, to launch and, and get up there. But just having the assets on orbit is only part of the equation, as, as you would, I think, agree, that what follows is the concept of operations. How are you going to operate both the communications later? Who's going to operate it? And then one of the first, I think, uh, missions is the tracking layer. They talk about putting that up, which I assume is part of missile warning uh, support. How, how will that be integrated and supported, if at all, by the Space Force? Yeah, first I want to congratulate the Space Development Agency. Absolutely. You know, that organization started out in uh, DOD at the kind of the office of the Secretary of Defense mm -hmm. level, OSD. But uh, last fall they moved over and are now a, a you know, full part of the Space Force. Mm -hmm. And uh, their director over there, Dr. Derek Tournier, just a fantastic partner and, and leader. And we're excited to watch it as they're moving fast with their recent Tranche Zero mm -hmm. launch. Uh, Derek and I have been discussing, really for the better part of a year now, this very issue. How do we uh, make sure that when they are ready to hand over those capabilities uh, to an operational command, mm -hmm. uh, which will be Spock, and then as that gets presented to a combatant command for capability, 
how are we ready to do that? One of the things I admire about Derek is he has a, a small but mighty team and he rigorously prioritizes them. And so about a year ago, he and I were started talking and he said, so now I'm, I'm projecting into fall of 22. He said, in the fall of 22, we will be ready to, to rigorously start working this operations integration. And, and so we, we did some uh, preparatory things and then last uh, fall in October, we started working this now in detail. And so I have a team at headquarters Spock and he has an office um, at the Space Development Agency that is focused on this integration effort. And so now we're starting to develop the operational concept of, of how will these new organizations align into Spock deltas or, or maybe are they so different as a proliferated low earth orbit type capability that we need a standalone delta mm -hmm. so that those discussions are ongoing. How do we task it? How do we integrate it? I think to your point, uh, if we're not taking the tracking data and integrating it with our broader missile warning and uh, missile track, missile defense capabilities, I think uh, we're, we're missing an opportunity there. So that's certainly the direction that we're marching toward. Um, but as a reminder, tranche zero will not become an operational capability. That will come with tranche one, which will, uh, I think we're targeting late 24 for launch. And then of course there'll be test and checkout periods. So we're still a couple years away from that capability being presented to an operational command. And I'm comfortable that we're on path to get that ops concept work done uh, to shape it appropriately so that when we do accept it, we'll be ready to operate it. Great. And a big part of that will be, if you need more manpower, will be to put that into the program to request a growth in manpower to support these new missions. Uh, and perhaps missile warning is not new, um, but doing it from low Earth orbit and doing it the way you're proposing to do it in the future, um, do, you, do you envision that... Um, that mission set from a CONOPS perspective, and I know it's early, would be just done up at Buckley as the current Sibbers missile warning is done, or do you see it perhaps being going someplace else because of either the, the architecture uh, or the mission set that it's, it's chartered to support? Uh, sure, great question. I, I don't think we necessarily have to say it's gonna be at Buckley. In fact, as the Space Development Agency is starting to work Tranche zero, tranche one, they are developing uh, some operating locations um, up at Grand Forks, North Dakota, and at Redstone Arsenal in mm. Huntsville. And, um, and those will be important parts of this uh, capability. I think what's ultimately most important is where the data goes and, uh, and how we, we manage that, and that's all being worked out in that operational concept. Okay, excellent. Well, one of the key assumptions of moving to smaller satellites, more proliferated uh, architectures, was that it would be um, more survivable. And, but that kind of raises the question is how many do you need, given the, given the, the threats that are being developed by our potential adversaries in China and Russia, given their capabilities that we see them fielding, does that kind of help, does it, how do you size these architectures to make sure that the theory in fact in practice works? Yeah, of course, the answer is it depends based mm -hmm. on the mission, based on the time epic that you're looking at, because the time epic also informs us about what those threats are that are out there, mm -hmm. whether they're non-kinetic threats like um, jamming capability or kinetic threats like uh, direct ascent ASATs. So we don't have a specific number that you have to get to, but what we do definitely want to get to is a proliferated low Earth orbit architecture that promotes more resiliency mm -hmm. because it complicates REDS targeting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they can't just take out one or two or, or, or a dozen because you have so many that you can continue to provide the capability. I think one of the primary um, lessons or observations coming out of the Russia-Ukraine conflict is how the Ukrainians have leveraged the Starlink, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, constellation. I think going into that conflict, uh, if we had thought that a 
country that we consider a, a near peer competitor like Russia had invaded one of its neighboring countries and was trying to take off the air uh, a capability that that uh, neighboring country was leveraging. Uh, I, I'm not sure we would have predicted they would be unsuccessful doing that. Uh, but I think we're seeing with Starlink what the advantages are of a PLEO uh, constellation. I'll also say another thing I'm excited about with PLEO is we need we are going to get on those kind of commercial cost curves and tech refresh curves mm -hmm. where you can inject new technology into you know subsequent launches as you get on these faster launch rates, uh, which will just bring more capability to us moving forward. So you won't have these start and yeah, start and stops for a long period, right. and because of that, just the whole concept of, of operation or development really that's right. in that, in that yes, case. Well, that's powerful. Um, what about rapid reconstitution? Is that still something that's being talked about or um, or is what you just described as an ongoing regeneration and production of satellites? Is that is that more the direction that we're going in? I, I think we're looking at all these options right now. Certainly um, regular launches to space that you can quickly integrate a payload onto. Uh, sometimes we call that the freight train to space concept that you know there's something kind of leaving every week, every two weeks on a regular battle rhythm. Uh, but we also, working with our partners at Space Systems Command, uh, we are supporting a, uh, a rapid tactical launch uh, series of exercises that, that they are doing. In fact, we're going to execute one this summer to prove we can do call-up and launch a capability on orbit. Uh, we did one of those a year or two ago, and, and there's money in the budget to continue to do those to demonstrate the ability to rapidly put a specific payload on orbit uh, very quickly uh, when required. We'll continue to, look, to learn from those exercises, and that'll inform any potential con ops as we move forward. Right. Do you see a demand for um, having more than the current two major launch sites uh, in, in the continental United States to be able to do this kind of work? Yeah. Well, I think we're seeing commercial uh, really start to open up other opportunities mm -hmm. as well. There are some commercial companies going out of Wallops Island where mm -hmm. NASA has capability. I think there are some launching out of Kodiak and the, uh, the Alaskan launch range. Of course, we watch uh, SpaceX as they've been building out their star base down near Brownsville, Texas. So we're starting to see other capabilities you know, emerge uh, in addition to uh, Cape Canaveral, Patrick, and Vandenberg, which, of course, are just foundational to all that we do and, and to much of commercial industry. So uh, I, I feel like we're on a reasonable path there for the number of uh, launch locations that we have. Great. Let me go back to the threat again. And so you counter the the attack on a satellite constellation by increasing numbers. But in a regional area when there's a fight going on, and we're seeing, I think we've seen this in the Ukraine, there are other ground-based capabilities that can be put up to jam capabilities that the ground forces or the air forces or maritime forces may be requiring from space. For example, GPS jamming, uh, comm jamming. Um, how do you, how do we address these kinds of threats when, you know, the capabilities there in space, it's coming by overhead, but you got these jammers and maybe even space-based jammers trying to interdict uh, what you're bringing to the fight? You, sir, I think what we've seen in Russia, Ukraine is exactly what we would have anticipated that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there is GPS jamming occurring. And of course, that's why we are building the current GPS-3 constellation, which is more resilient than the previous GPS-2 uh, versions. Um, we have uh, encode capability, which we started in GPS-2, but GPS-3 encode is even stronger and has more advanced encryption so that we can uh, you know, provide better anti-jam capability and provide uh, anti-spoofing capability. Mm -hmm. And then when we get to the next tranche of GPS-3s, which will start with vehicle 11, uh, that will have regional spot beam capability, again, to really help us fight through uh, jamming capabilities. Um, of course, we've seen um, satellite 
communications jamming in, in Russia-Ukraine as well. Again, exactly what we would have anticipated, and, and it highlights uh, future evolution of capability that we're working across all of our uh, various SATCOM bandwidths or our bands to, um, to provide anti-jam capability, more resilient capability. And part of that was the recent changes we've made in our organizational structure. As I mentioned, we brought in now all, all the Army and Navy uh, SATCOM uh, capability into Delta 8. That was 600 people worth of, uh, of mission as well as multiple uh, units. And now we have all that SATCOM capability in Delta 8. Uh, we, we're standing up and have stood up over the last uh, couple years a new operational level element for our SATCOM integrated operations division, which mm -hmm. helps us fight SATCOM, if you will, at the operational level, so we can really be more agile uh, through all of the various bands. So um, I think we have seen what we expected to see, and it, it, it just validates many of the changes we are trying to make to become a more resilient architecture relative to these threats. Now, if we were to get into a conflict, of course, we're not part of Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict, um, then we would expect um, that we're going to have to work with uh, regional combatant commanders to help target those kind of capabilities if we're seeing them from a, a red actor like uh, jammers and, and counter space capabilities on, on the ground. Yeah, yeah that, I'm reminded that when Saddam Hussein's forces tried to use GPS jammers in Iraqi freedom, we took out the sites with GPS guided yes, munitions. So to your point, you know, there's the integration between space forces and then air, land, and sea forces to defeat these threats so that space forces can operate more effectively is a great synergy there and a great teaming opportunity going forward. Yes, sir. That's great. Hey, uh, color me guilty on this one. Everyone likes to talk about satellites in space, but as you well know, and, and there's, there's more to it to deliver the capability. You have to have the, the ground element and you have to have the command and control links to talk to those satellites, not only to operate them, but also to get their data down and then push it out to the forces. Um, what improvements do you think needs to be need to be made to our current force structure to increase the likelihood of the survivability, not only of the ground segment, but the links? We've already talked a bit about the satellites. Yes, sir. So the satellite control network, the SCN as we call it, is a, a series of 19 antennas all around the world that allow our space operators, no matter where they're sitting, to send commands to the to their satellites. So we can have a operator at Schriever, of course, in Colorado Springs, send a command to a satellite over the Indian Ocean, and we route that to an antenna in the Indian Ocean, and then it goes up to the satellite and brings down the data. That, that satellite control network is, uh, to use a word I like to say, venerable, which is a nice way of saying it's very old, yeah. and, and we are wringing every ounce of capability out of it uh, that we can. And we really have some creative people uh, and, and teams working in that enterprise to make sure we can continue to leverage that. Um, and in many ways, those 19 antennas are the equivalent of runways for the U.S. Air Force. So runways allow airplanes to access their domain. Well, these, these antennas allow us mm -hmm. to get to and talk to our satellites. So we're trying to now ensure that we can um, continue to use that capability while leveraging other capabilities and then upgrading uh, the SCN. So other capabilities we're currently working to leverage uh, inside the federal government uh, the NOAA, uh, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, they have a series of antennas now that we are partnering with them to leverage for some of our satellite constellations, like the Defense Meteorological Satellite Program, DMSP, which is a weather satellite system. And uh, later this year, we'll even test 
out using those NOAA antennas on uh, some of our other satellites as okay. well. Um, some of our constellations, in fact, most of the big constellations, they have their own dedicated antennas as well. So that's, a, again, more capability that helps round mm -hmm. out the satellite control network. Uh, but perhaps what we're most excited about is in partnership with the Space Rapid Capability Office, the Space RCO mm -hmm. as we call it, uh, they are in the process of developing and then they'll be acquiring a, uh, a flat plate phased array radar system that can do 10 contacts, 10 satellite contacts at a time. We call that SCAR, Satellite Communication Augmentation Resource, I think is what that stands mm -hmm. for. But essentially, we'll, we'll be able to put one of, one of these SCARs at one of our satellite control networks. And instead of being able to do two or three contacts at a time, we, which we can do today, we'll be able to do 10 at a time. So really right. starting to multiply that capability. Uh, so we'll get the first of those in the next couple of years. And then hopefully we can continue to field more SCARs as we go forward to, to upgrade and modernize the satellite control network. That's no, really increase your capability dramatically. That's great. So beyond jamming, uh, we saw the Russians, even be just before they invaded Ukraine, use a cyber attack against a, a commercial telecommunications company that provided a lot of calm to the Ukrainian government. Um, and they successfully shut them down. Um, but as you pointed out, Starlink and other capabilities have allowed the Ukrainians to work around that. The cyber threat's a real threat to the to the whole ground infrastructure as well. And can you talk a little bit about how you're addressing the cyber threat to your networks? Yes, sir. It's a critical issue for us. And in fact, we like to say cyber is the soft underbelly of the uh, U.S. Space Force and the space enterprise. Um, why do we say that? Because we have these global networks. Think GPS, satellite communications, missile warning. Those not only wrap around the planet and touch every continent, mm -hmm. but they extend out to 22,000 miles above the Earth's surface out to geosynchronous orbit where our satellites are. And that creates a lot of novel cyber attack surface. And so we have to defend that cyber terrain because while countries like Russia and China have demonstrated through their direct ascent ASAT tests that they could take us on in the domain, they would rather try to take us on via cyber because it's cheaper mm -hmm. and it's harder to attribute. And then there's other countries like Iran and North Korea who have not yet demonstrated the ability to take us on in the domain, so they would rather take us on in cyber as well if they were trying to deny our, our space capabilities. But it's so important to us, General Chilton, uh, in the Space Force, we only have five career fields that uniformed guardians are, are assigned to. It's space operations, intel, cyber, uh, development engineer and acquisition. So one of those is cyber. That's why we have a cyber workforce, is to defend us. Now today, some of those cyber guardians are still provisioning base level networks, uh, like our, our email and our telephones. We have an agreement with the Air Force that we are getting out of that business. The, the Air Force will provide that capability for us or we'll contract it out to industry. We are pivoting all of our cyber guardians onto defending our mission systems or they're executing core uh, cyber missions like SATCOM, uh, you know, helping us maintain and point the antennas where they need to go and maintaining those networks. They're doing core business for the Space Force, not doing base level installation business. And, um, and so that's, that's vital to us. And, um, and we're building out mission defense teams of these cyber guardians to, to provide this cyber defense. About a year and a half ago, we stood up an organization called the Cybersecurity um, Service Provider, CSSP, that helps us defend some of these weapon systems. And they have relationships back to U.S. Cybercom um, and to 16th Air Force as we, as we work this in partnership. I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next question. So I, uh, um, 
So you're looking at cyber specifically for defending your assets right. and strengthening, hardening your assets. What is the relationship with 16th Air Force and with U.S. Cyber Command, who, as a combatant command, is responsible for doing that for everybody's networks at the highest level, and 16th is their Air Force component. And now you're doing it separately in the Space Force. Tell me how that all works together so that um, you don't get in each other's way, and in fact, you, add, you, you, you get you know, one plus one plus one equals five. Yes, sir. So U.S. Uh, Cyber Command, um, as you mentioned, has responsibility for defending the DOD information network. And so as uh, through those authorities that mm -hmm. they have, our cybersecurity service provider, CSSP, has been granted an authority to operate by a subordinate organization of Cybercom known as Joint Force Headquarters um, Department of Defense Information Network. Big, big long word, JFHQ DOE. Okay. And so they've come in, they've, they've essentially certified that we're ready to operate, and then we have relationships with them where they share information and we share information, okay. and that helps us better defend our capability. Now, expect to see over the next couple years that the Space Force will uh, build out a service component to U.S. Cyber Command, okay. just like we've now built out a service component to uh, Indo-PACOM. Uh, of course, we have one for Space Command, which is, is my command. Um, U.S. Forces Korea now has a service component, and U.S. Central Command has a, a service component. Sixteenth um, Air Force, we very uh, have a great relationship and are dependent on them because they defend those base level networks, like our unclassified and classified email systems. You know, we like to call those admin systems, but we do a lot of important work over those systems, and so they're defending that for yeah. us. We also have a, a relationship with Sixteenth Air Force where they have allowed us to put a couple of our cyber guardians inside some of their offensive cyber units. So we've sent our guardians through the training and they're assigned to those Air Force units, uh, getting some expertise as we think through where we might go in the future with uh, offensive cyber as well. Great. It, it sounds a little complicated. On the other hand, I, I'm encouraged here, you're growing the force to, I guess if it's one of your five priorities, it makes sense that, that you're gonna take shoulder this burden of cyber, cyber defense first at, at your Space Force operations level. Y yes, sir, and in fact, those mission defense teams I mentioned, yeah. We consider those to be um, assigned parts of the operational units. Now we have a Delta, Delta Six, that does that defensive cyber work, mm -hmm. but now they've stood up squadrons that actually sit with each of our other Deltas. So if you go to Buckley Space Force Base, where we do the missile warning mission, we have a 64th cyber squadron there, whose job is to work with and alongside Delta Four each and every day to defend the missile warning architecture uh, in the okay. cyber domain. So uh, very proud of that Delta Six team and how they're integrating with the other Deltas uh, to provide that capability. That's great. So you don't have to worry about resources being shifted away to other priorities. You've got the resources to address your priorities. Yes, sir. That's excellent. Uh, let's talk a little bit about commercial assets in space. And you, you brought it up in your opening remarks about Starlink's uh, effectiveness in supporting um, the Ukrainians in their operations and defending their country. Um, it seems as global threats grow, the reliance and partnership with commercial capabilities is, is going to continue to grow as well. And in other domains, we rely on commercial partners, whether it be in the maritime domain to move forces across the oceans or the CRAF, uh, Civilian Reserve Air Force fleet that comes out of the airlines to help move uh, troops around the world and when we don't, when we get into a crisis. So um, it's, it's not without similar models in other areas, but uh, how do you see commercial service providers and industry continuing to be a force multiplier in future conflicts from the space perspective? Yes, sir, I think this is one of the, the principal lessons, again, coming out of uh, Russia-Ukraine is the value of commercial space 
Um, you know, it, it increases capacity. It uh, also helps you to overcome some of the classification challenges that maybe using a, a U.S.-owned government uh, system uh, might present. Um, but I, I like to say we're in a second golden age of space, and maybe the first golden age was when um, the Apollo program and when Neil Armstrong walked out onto the lunar surface, you know, how that inspired um, so, so many people around the world. Today, I think there's that equal amount of excitement about space, but it's being led by largely U.S. commercial industry. So it's an incredible capability for us, and we have to leverage it. And, uh, and I think we're seeing that happen now uh, across a whole number of, uh, of mission sets. And so we want to continue to make sure we can, we can leverage uh, those uh, commercial systems and that we are uh, not building du duplicate systems when we can leverage uh, commercial industry. Okay. You know, I think you brought this up last time we talked, and that is how, you know, the CRAF uh, in the air domain, if, if the threat is too high, they don't necessarily go into the theater until it's suppressed. Same in the maritime domain. But in space, there's no place to hide. So the commercial assets are going to be up there. They're going to be flying over these very systems we talked about that our adversaries are fielding that can put at risk satellites on orbit, whether they're military or commercial. Um, what are some of the, are there force protection concerns that you have to think about when you are utilizing commercial satellites beyond indication and warning, but once a conflict starts? Yeah, you make an interesting point that, uh, you know, because of Kepler's laws in yeah. space, uh, you know, it's commercial systems face same threats that we do in a way that maybe isn't the same in mm -hmm. the terrestrial domain. Although we do leverage uh, commercial capability in the terrestrial domain, and there are some force uh, protection considerations sure. there. But things we're interested in, um, obviously, and we want to work with our commercial partners on, um, number one, cybersecurity. You know, uh, as, as we saw in Russia, Ukraine, there were cyber attacks on commercial companies. Mm -hmm. Want to make sure that those commercial uh, companies that we partner with are hardening themselves in the cyber domain. Uh, want to make sure they're thinking about resiliency relative to the threats that they also will face. Um, we have a, a partnership with many uh, companies that we in the DOD contract with out at Vandenberg known as the commercial integration cell where we can share threat information at the highest levels help inform them so that as they build their systems they can they can develop resiliency into those systems uh, relative to those threats and then uh, the third aspect I'd highlight is the physical security of, uh, of some of our operating locations whether they're back here in the CONUS or we're using overseas locations for antenna sites you know, we've got to make sure that those those sites are secure and, and uh, can stand up against uh, the types of threats that they might see as well. Um, and, and so those are the kind of things that we're interested in working with those partners on. Okay, great. Uh, and let me pull that thread a little further um, with regard to maybe potential policy issues. So we envision a day the Secretary has, uh, has talked about, and you mentioned it as a priority, ISR from space. So we can see a day where both uh, Space Force owned and operated ISR assets are supporting a, a regional combatant commander at the operational, maybe even at the tactical level of war at some point. Um, what, are there policy issues surrounding when you're using a commercial asset in warfare? I, can under, I could see where you could use them to find, fix, and maybe track an adversary. But when it comes to targeting and completing that kill chain, are there policy issues associated with that? Yeah, uh, and of course, I'll, I'll caveat this answer by saying uh, I'm in an operational command and there are people that think about policy and, and worry sure. about this and I'll sure. defer to them for the specific answer. But if we're talking about data that we might get from commercial contracts where we're 
contracting with commercial companies. Uh, I am not aware of any policy prohibition about us using that data as part of that, you know, fine fix part of the of the the kill chain. Um, now, that doesn't mean there aren't some significant policy interests there that need to be thought through as we, you know, uh, do contract with commercial mm -hmm. uh, uh, organizations. And I know a lot of people are are, are looking and thinking about that right now. Uh, but you know, the, the folks on the line might find it interesting to know that uh, for several years now in the Unified Command Plan, which is the plan the president signs to the combatant commanders telling them what their mission is, there has been a, uh, a, a task for U.S. Space Command telling them that when directed to protect and defend commercial capabilities. Um, and so they, they, that responsibility already exists with U.S. Space Command. So um, I think as we think through policy issues of how we use data, and uh, think about then how we might contribute to the defense of commercial capabilities, that task has already been written. The last point I think I'd make, General Chilton, is uh, if we were to go farther up the kill chain, obviously there are government-only interests and there are military-only interests, and there's an analysis that's always done of, of what, you know, what, uh, what functions need to be done by government personnel and what gov uh, functions need to be done by military personnel. And uh, we're always assessing that as we're thinking about contracting capability. Great. Thank you. I maybe led you a little bit on my last question, but I presume that one day there would be squadrons or Space Force uh, groups that own and operate reconnaissance assets from space, with their number one priority being support of regional combatant commanders, the terrestrial domain. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Is this something that, it sounds like, the, I'm hearing this come out of the secretaries, I think, but I'm hearing from the Department of the Air Force that that's a mission they want. And you've mentioned ISR as one of your top five. So what do you see the future looking like? You know, if we look at the other services, uh, which have been around a lot longer than the Space Force, uh, all of them have tactical Title 10 ISR capability that, that they retain or they present to a combatant command to, to execute missions on behalf of uh, tactical, tactical warfighters. So as we think about that for the Space Force, um, you know, no different in the Space Force than maybe in the other domains, but we need to start by looking at what exists today. So today we have the world's best um, government-owned ISR capabilities through the National Reconnaissance Office and what they bring. We also have now the, the world's best commercial ISR capabilities uh, that are coming to us from, from U.S. Uh, commercial industry. So as we, 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 as we look at that and think about how we can best leverage uh, both those uh, sets of capabilities um, and then look at the, the gaps that might exist and what we might need to build going forward, um, I, I think whether it's owned by the Space Force or we leverage these other two uh, sets of capabilities in some unique way, all of that is in discussion right now. But I, I just don't think we should, we should uh, you know, be concerned if we do land in a place that says, hey, the Space Force will have uh, retained capability for our own purposes uh, to support tactical warfighting uh, like the other services do. But no decisions have been made, and those discussions are ongoing right but now. But that's, that's going to be an important and interesting discussion. I mean, if you, if, to quote General Hyden, uh, big, fat, juicy targets, uh, that would be all the NRO assets. Uh, they are incredibly capable, but they are big, fat, juicy targets. And trying and actually fielding a capability. Now, the commercial piece helps out because you get things like Starlink with others that have you know larger constellations of smaller satellites that can be reconstituted or whatever, or di more difficult to target as the CONOPS presents. But um, there's that issue. And I think there's also a prioritization issue that there's a reason it's called national reconnaissance. Uh, it's not 
combatant commander reconnaissance. And, and my sense is, is the service's job is to support combatant commanders, and, and that needs to be their number one priority. And when it's a national asset, appropriately so, there are national requirements that could perhaps trump uh, the requirements of a combatant commander, even when he's engaged, he or she is engaged. Would you agree with that? Well, you know, I would say that the, the National Constance Office is a fantastic partner of, of Space Force, yeah. and, and they have some uh, world-leading thinking on developing resiliency and have, have moved out on that, and we're mm -hmm. partnered with them on how we think about resiliency across the space enterprise. I really want to compliment them on that work. And then on the, um, again, uh, you know, I think we've got to look at what capabilities are out there today and where the tasking is coming from, and then what's ultimately getting to the tactical warfighter and uh, if between what's in the, uh, the National Reconnaissance Enterprise and what's in commercial, uh, we need to develop something new, then, then we'll, we'll, we'll figure that out and where that, that command and control and tasking uh, lies. Um, but I think that's still some work to be done. Okay. All right. Um, you've already addressed the growth of the intelligence community in, in the Space Force, which personally I think is fantastic. I can remember, it uh, wasn't that long ago where the, the number of people at NASIC who were paying attention to the S in the acronym SPACE was about 60 people, which was totally inadequate. Uh, of course, the threat has changed, so I understand why it was what it was. Uh, can you expand a little bit more on what NASIC, that, that group at NASIC is going to be doing for you uh, as, it, as they inform either the development of requirements going forward to counter adversary threats or assessment of adversary capabilities? It's the area I think we've probably made the most progress in since the stand-up of the Space Force, which mm -hmm. is really trying to, to improve our um, intelligence capabilities and being led by intelligence in all that we do. So I will start by talking, as you asked, about Delta 18, mm -hmm. what we call INSEC, the National Space Intel Center, which has been stood up right alongside the Air Force's Foundational Intel Center, NASIC. Yeah. Um, they're doing the long-range looks at uh, competitors like Russia and China, 5, 10, 20, 30 years out uh, to, to look at where they are headed. Um, that organization at Delta 18 brings together intelligence analysts, but also engineering experts so that we can really make those um, uh, you know, analyses of where are those countries going and then inform our acquisition and also inform our policymakers. But we're also growing our tactical and operational level intelligence mm -hmm. as well. Um, when the Space Force was stood up, we went all around the Air Force and found all the pockets of, of locations that were doing intel for space. And we brought all that into Delta 7. And at the time, in 2020, we stood up three squadrons. A 71st squadron that assigns detachments of intel professionals into each of our other deltas. So again, if you go to Buckley, Delta 4, which is doing missile warning, not only will you find that cyber squadron there defending them in the the missile warning architecture in the cyber domain, but there's a detachment of intel professionals whose only job is to make sure those missile warning operators have all the information they need to execute their mission. The second squadron is the 72nd ISR squadron, and that, that's a deployable mobile capability that can provide electronic support to our uh, electromagnetic warfare units, as well as uh, can perform tactical SIGINT. And then we have a 73rd squadron that has fixed sites around the world that can also support electronic support and, and SIGINT, BIZINT, those kind of uh, missions. We just stood up a new 74th Intel squadron that is our analysis squadron. So it does deep looks at specific red threats and then pairs with our blue operators of our, of our space systems mm -hmm. to help them develop TTPs to operate 
successfully relative to those threats. Later this year, we'll stand up a 75th ISR squadron. That's a targeting squadron that'll get after targeting across uh, the enterprise, uh, whether that's electronic warfare or, or, or other capabilities. Um, and, and that'll be a great capability. And then next year, we'll stand up the 76th Intel squadron, which will be our um, exploitation squadron. So as the systems we have produce products and capabilities and information, that uh, exploitation squadron will be the ones really, uh, you know, digging into that and then uh, pulling out the intelligence that we need and disseminating it appropriately. So just uh, fantastic growth across. But it's like a fractal. If you've ever seen that on a, you know, on a computer where you, you see a certain shape and as you drill in, Mm -hmm. The shape just keeps getting bigger and bigger because even though we've made a lot of progress, we know there's so much more yet to do in our Intel enterprise as we grow out the entire uh, Intel community to support us in the space domain. Great. Uh, <laughs> such an important part of your capability. Um, let me shift to space domain awareness. So our U.S. Space Command commanders put that very high on his priority list is to increase domain uh, situation awareness. Um, I also saw an article just, I think, believe this morning, talking about the Space Force partnering with the NRO for capabilities in this domain. Is this, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, what you're looking at to, one, meet the needs of, of the U.S. Cyber Command, I'm sorry, U.S. Space Command commander, but also how you see the NRO being involved in this classically Space Force mission? Yeah, space domain awareness is just absolutely foundational to all that we do. In fact, our, our service doctrine says it's one of the five core competencies of the, the Space Force. And I'm really proud of our uh, Space Delta II leadership team. They have been very innovative with what they have. And let me walk through a few of those. Uh, and, and I'll start by saying, why do they have to be innovative? Over the, Since the stand-up of the Space Force three and a half years ago, we've seen a 90% increase in the number of trackable objects on orbit. I mean, think about that. Mm -hmm. if, if our investment returns were coming back at 90% over three and a half years, we'd be thrilled. It's just an incredible amount of growth. And so they're really having to work very hard to, to, to you know, keep up with that and then, and then stay ahead of it. So um, just within the last year, we've stood up a new squadron on Maui where we partnered with the Air Force Research Lab. It used to be there were two organizations there. There was one mm -hmm. using uh, some telescopes to do operational space domain awareness, and then AFRL was there doing all sorts of interesting science and technology. We've combined those organizations, and now the squadron commander is an operational squadron commander for Delta II, but he's also a division director for AFRL. So we're bringing together ops and science and technology, and we're finding we can field capability faster mm -hmm. through those relationships. We also, over the last year, stood up a new squadron at Dahlgren, Virginia. That used to be a detachment that was a backup location, mm -hmm. which was an important mission, but it, it existed to do a backup function. Well, now we've stood up the 19th Space Defense Squadron, and Delta II has federated more work from Vandenberg at the 18th over to the 19th, and now they do the, the non-human conjunction analysis mission, where we, we screen all the active satellites against all the debris on orbit to to warn people if we see conjunctions mm -hmm. happening. That has freed up capacity in our enterprise to also allow the 19th to get after the XGEO mission or CISLUNAR, where we think about now, not only is space domain awareness important out to geosynchronous orbit, but we gotta think about now the space between geo and, and lunar orbit. Yeah. Um, and so they're helping us now figure out what are our capabilities and what do we need to do going forward. Uh, we also have a, a space domain awareness um, uh, uh, squadron at Eglin. It has a radar, and mm -hmm. some of uh, the listeners may be familiar with that. Well, now we're also making it our radar center of excellence. So we're operating the space fence, which is actually located at Kwajalein Atoll, but it's being operated out of Eglin. And then there's a new capability coming online called the uh, Deep Space um, 
advanced radar concept called DARK. DARK will be located around the world, but it's going to be operated out of Eglin as well. So some important evolutions as we continue to take today's capabilities and evolve them. Now, you asked about our relationship with the NRO. Um, several years ago, we had a need uh, in the, on the Space Force side to develop a follow-on to the space-based space situational awareness satellite, SBSS. Mm -hmm. Well, at the same time, the NRO had uh, indications and warning requirement to help, uh, to help, you know, with intelligence and geo. Well, we decided to work together, and okay. there's a program called Silent Barker that's going to get after both of those requirements. And we have a joint program office with Great. the NRO that is, is leading the development of that system, and that will launch uh, later this year. So uh, I think where we have shared interests, we absolutely want to partner with them to uh, field capability quickly. Yeah, but then you'll retain control over it in support of U.S. Cyber uh, Space Command, I'm sorry, well, as far as space situation awareness which mission. In that case, in this case, it's going to be more about the data. And so we will have access to all that data and the ability to, to use Silent Barker for our purposes, uh, again, to help us track the you know, that 90% growth that we've seen over the last three and a half years. Okay. Um, but who gets to decide which way it's looking? Well, we'll have a process to do that, uh, and, and we've got a CONOPS with the NRO that, uh, that, that indicates what it'll be doing each and every day. Okay. Well, I think some of those same challenges would exist in if you start to develop uh, reconnaissance assets that you would own, unless you own it and operate them, then there's no issue there. So I, I think that's a, that, that'll be an interesting test that concept of operations going forward, I think. Hey, before we go to our audience here, which we'll do here shortly, um, two things that, one thing that always comes up is overclassification, working with our allies. In the last year, what progress have you seen in, in this area that uh, brought our allies in closer and maybe relieved some of their frustrations? Yeah, and this is an ultra marathon. Um, you yeah. know, we're not gonna reach an end state that we just declare victory. And over the last year, I have been in meetings with our uh, some of our allies that I have not been in before. Uh, we now are talking about uh, sharing capabilities that we have not talked about before. Mm -hmm. uh, some of our exchange officers now from those countries that work inside our headquarters and our units have enhanced access to information we didn't have before. So we are making progress, but this continues to need to be attacked at all levels. And by all levels, I mean there's a policy aspect to this of what do we want to share and with whom do we want to share that. Um, you know, which countries have demonstrated they can protect our secrets, just like we need to be able to protect their secrets. Um, there is a, an instruction or, or guidance level where, you know, there's written documentation about how we implement the policy, that that guidance needs to be as, as good as possible. And then there's an execution level. Do we have the, the foreign disclosure officers where we need them to be? Are we writing for disclosure? Are we doing the things that enable us to share? And, uh, and again, I think we're making uh, progress, but uh, it's never fast enough. And uh, there always will be points that uh, friction that we'll have to work through with our allies. Um, and, and hopefully, again, uh, the allies that we're sharing with uh, demonstrate that they, they can protect the information as we need it to be protected. Terrific. And then one last question on culture. So you brought a lot of soldiers and sailors into your organization yeah. here. Now, obviously, there was a great shift of airmen into the organization. Um, and in my experience at NASA was there was actually strength in working with the other services under one organizational umbrella. We we're all part of NASA, but we had uh, naval officers and enlisted. We had Army, Air Force, all working together there. Uh, we learned from each other things that we didn't appreciate. What, what are you seeing as you integrate these these forces into your command? Yeah, it's amazing these guardians we get to work with that started out in the other services, not the Air Force. Yeah. Um, sometimes we refer to them as non-Air Force ISTs, inter-service transferees. Yeah. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds now. And, and think about it. Some of them 
were approaching 30 years of service, successful careers, and they still said, I want to join this new thing, the U.S. Space Force. So they, they took a massive chance on coming over. And, uh, and we are learning a ton from them. Uh, you know, when they first came over, especially some of the first tranches, um, that was unprecedented since, you know, the services can handle onesies, twosies transferring, but hundreds at a time. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the personnel systems don't talk to each other across the various armed forces. So we learned a lot, and they, they you know, stayed with us as we went through all that, and they helped to guide lessons learned for the follow-on tranches. But more importantly, they are bringing uh, different aspects to our culture, and, of course, that's what we want. Mm -hmm. uh, we are creating something new uh, that comes from all of our backgrounds, and they're helping us. Uh, with things that they're, you know, maybe had more experience with, like mission command and the ability to speak joint earlier in a career. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also learning from them uh, new ways of operating. When we took on, for example, the Navy's Satellite Operations Center at Point Magoo, we've stood up a, a squadron there, TINSOPS, that is contractor and government civilian-run operations. That's not the model we had in the Air Force. So can we learn from that and, and start to template that elsewhere? Um, so these these inter-service transferees, they, they constantly are coming to us saying, we have more to give, and, and we are doing all that we can to give them that opportunity. And in fact, we just had a Tiger team um, that's oh, it's standing up now. They just briefed me earlier this week about, here's some specific recommendations, General Whiting, that we think you should be taking and the enterprise should be taking to help better leverage us. So really appreciate how hard they're leaning into this. Sounds like they're really value-added. Yes, sir. Well. Yeah. Well, we've come to that time where we give our audience an opportunity to uh, ask questions. And uh, I would like our audience, if you raise your hand or want to submit your questions uh, in a written format, Aiden will recognize you. Uh, be sure to unmute your mic. And we'd like you to identify yourself and your organization when you talk. And then don't forget to remute your mic when you're done with your question. So with that, Aiden, I'll turn it over to you to see what questions we have coming in for General Whiting from the audience. First, we have a question from Greg Hadley of Air and Space Force Magazine. With proliferation becoming an increasingly important attribute and plans to launch hundreds of satellites in the next few years, how comfortable are you with the manpower over at Spot? Will you need more operators to keep up with the sheer number of spacecraft you'll be operating? Yeah, thank you for that uh, question, Greg. Um, as we think about new mission and new capability coming to Space Operations Command, we're, we're laser focused on what uh, General Saltzman and the Chief Space, uh, as the Chief Space Operation has, has talked about, that we have to bring capability that's fully burdened. And what I mean by that is that we aren't just focused on the satellite and the launch date, but what are all the capabilities that are required uh, to make sure that, that we can actually operate those new systems. And manpower is a key part of that. And so we have a whole host of uh, efforts ongoing uh, to make sure that, that we are using the existing manpower as efficiently as possible. And then if we do need additional manpower, that we're uh, making that argument uh, in the, uh, in the uh, budget processes and, uh, and then working across the enterprise uh, to develop that manpower. Um, so uh, we'll, we will pace new manpower to new mission as it comes. Uh, but, uh, but, but I, I think we will continue to have the manpower that we need as new mission continues to arrive. So thanks for that question. Yeah, if I could, uh, let me pile on that for a second. We talked about this a little before we came on air. It's, I was recently uh, teaching a Space 300 course, and one of the enlisted members of the course was wondering, is there a future for the enlisted force in the Space Force? Given that it's become a more technically focused force because of the threat and the different things we have to do on orbit today and through the whole command and control process that we didn't have to do in the past. And his question was, is 
you know, is, are we going to see a decrease in the need for enlisted personnel in the Space Force? Stay the same, or, or is there a growth opportunity here? Yeah, our enlisted personnel are absolutely Fantastic. the secret sauce yeah. of the U.S. Space Force. In fact, if you look at Russia, Ukraine, another lesson coming out of that is what happens to a force when they don't have an NCO Corps that they mm -hmm. trust and empower? And of course, we have this, this amazing uh, human capital in our enlisted force. Um, and, and we are actually looking to put more responsibility on them. They already have a ton of responsibility. Uh, but some of our new squadrons, which are standing up, the, the mix of officer to enlisted is, is waiting more toward the enlisted force now, uh, where instead of maybe in the past, some of our op squadrons were 50-50 officer NCO, some of the new squadrons are, are more like 80, 85 percent enlisted, 15 to you know 20 percent uh, officer. I think we will only see more of that going forward uh, because we can just put so much on our enlisted force, and they do so much for us, and uh, it's just an incredible resource. I was always impressed by the percentage of our enlisted force in the past who had technical degrees, you know, bachelor's degrees, some even master's degrees, and I imagine that's that you're seeing even more of that now. You are exactly right, sir. I, I know when I first came in the service in the 80s, um, you know, we didn't have an expectation that our senior NCOs and our NCOs would have those kind of degrees. And now, uh, certainly at the senior NCO level and more and more down into the NCO and, and even down into the specialist ranks in the Guardians, we see all of that. And uh, it's, it, it's an, again, just an incredible capability and the secret sauce of the Space Force. That's great. Aiden, next question. Hello, we have a question from Patrick Turner of Defense One. What role can on-orbit servicing play in reducing the vulnerability of fat, juicy targets like the NRO satellites you referred to earlier? Yeah, thank you, Patrick. Um, on-orbit servicing, of course, that's a capability now that we have seen in the commercial market. And uh, it is uh, and, and in, uh, just a great opportunity for us uh, moving forward. As we think about increasing the, uh, the, the, the dynamic operational capability on orbit, something like refueling uh, of, of existing systems or of future systems uh, is one way that we might, uh, we might get after that challenge. Uh, because today uh, we do limit the way we operate our systems based on fuel, because we've always kind of assumed that once you've, you've launched a satellite, you couldn't go back and touch it again. And the amount of fuel you had uh, to start was the amount of fuel you were going to end with. So uh, there is an entire line of effort with our Space Systems Command counterparts, uh, where they are looking at on-orbit logistics in fact, uh, I got to speak at a conference they held earlier this year in Orlando on that very topic. Uh, so again, very excited at what commercial industry is bringing us and the opportunities that it affords us in the Space Force. Great. Uh, we have a question here from Frank Wolf. How are you using AI and machine learning and how do you plan to use it in the future? Yeah, thank you for that question. My, my staff uh, and my family are sick of hearing me talk about chat GPT because <laughs> It does seem to me that over the last year that AIML has, has stopped being something that happens somewhere else that might affect you. And it is a practical application that we need to be driving across um, all of our uh, operations and business practices. Uh, so inside our uh, headquarters Space Operations Command, we have a Deputy Commanding General for Transformation organization. And uh, that organization right now is, is working through how do we implement a, a, a generative AI type uh, of, of capability inside the headquarters to help us get after our business practices. But we're also, uh, we've also established a top 10 AIML needs list across our operational missions and working with partners like Space Systems Command and Air Force Research Lab. Uh, we're working to actually field capability and, and we've, we've seen some of that. Uh, some of that's in our space develop, uh, pardon me, space domain awareness system uh, where we have a lot of data and, and AIML can help us parse through that data. 
We've also seen it in some predictive maintenance activity, predictive uh, maneuver type capability. So uh, we really are working hard to, to put practical instantiations of AI ML across our, all of our mission sets right now. It seems like that opens up great potential for improvements in operations, but also a vulnerability. How are you thinking about you know, protecting and making sure that what the machine is telling you is not corrupt? Great point, and, and so we need to have insights into how the AI ML is architected and, mm -hmm. and, and what we can, uh, you know, how it's, how it's coming to its uh, answers. Uh, we still have to have uh, humans in the loop while we are figuring out exactly and testing that AI ML capability to prove to ourselves that it's working mm -hmm. appropriately. And then those cyber mission defense teams that I talked about, making sure that once we have demonstrated to ourselves that this AI ML capability works, that it's not being corrupted uh, either. And, and so I think we're gonna have to work multi-layers as we become more comfortable and convince ourselves that this capability works for Great. us. Thank you. Next question. Uh, we have a question on offensive cyberspace operations and specifically what the timelines look like for developing that as a capability and if there are any con-ops yet or exercises that involve those capabilities. So certainly today, U.S. Cyber Command has offensive cyber capability, and one of the things they think about is how to leverage uh, offensive ci cyber for space purposes. In the future, who better to be thinking about that and, and being the people executing that than cyber guardians? Uh, of course, as guardians, they will spend their whole career uh, you know, learning about and being uh, experts on the space domain. Today, as I mentioned, we just have uh, you know one or two guardians who are who are in those Air Force offensive units. So there is still a lot of work to be done to figure out a timeline uh, moving forward, uh, but we're laying the groundwork for starting to figure that out with these first two uh, exchange personnel, if you will, who are serving inside those units. So a lot more information to come as we, as we chart that path. Uh, related to that, we have a question. Spock was one of the first Space Force organizations to embrace digital transformation with a deputy commanding general for transformation. What impacts is Fox seeing from this transformation taking place? Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, our Deputy Command General Transformation is actually an allied officer. It's a Royal Canadian uh, Brigadier General Kyle Paul. I certainly appreciate uh, Canada's willingness to invest you know, one of their uh, general officers uh, to, to work this. I think one of the things that I'm most excited about with this uh, focus on uh, transformation, digital transformation, is its ability to impact and impact, impact our culture and empower our people. So through the Space Force's Supracoder program, we're sending uh, guardians, officer enlisted and civilian, through uh, coding training, and then we assign them to these combat development teams, which are at the Delta and Squadron level, to get after solving those squadrons and those Delta's specific pain points. So, so in, in the cases of the, of the innovation, software innovations that are being worked, those deltas didn't have to go to some other development organization and, and ask somebody else to solve their problem. They're using their own people now to code solutions to their problems. And we're starting to see those delivered now onto both unclassified and classified systems. And, and that's impacting, again, the culture because people now believe, hey, I can solve my own problems. And uh, super excited to see how this uh, continues to, uh, to develop. Uh, but we are seeing a, an improvement in the efficiency of some of our uh, business practices through the development of these systems. And I think over time, we'll continue to see uh, more and more of these uh, applications that also get after our operational capabilities. It seems to me over the last six months, we've really hit kind of a knee in the curve. 
We've laid a lot of foundation for digital transformation, and now we're starting to see these applications rolling out from our, our combat development teams. And, and so appreciate the work of all those really smart uh, guardians. I think we've run out of time, unfortunately. This has been a great session. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've come to the end of this, unfortunately, the end of this Shriver Space Power Series. And I can't thank uh, General Whiting enough for taking time to come and speak with us today. And from all of us here at MI Space, we wish you a great space power kind of day.